Hi, welcome to By Being Be Right Back podcast. I'm Giona. I am Ava. And we know each other from way back when, when we were in our early threes, up to the thirteens, and now in our almost thirties. We both have been living in the Netherlands for almost 10 years and we both have been missing the conversation of what it means to be Caribbean in the Netherlands. We too deserve representation within the community we live in and we have responsibility to also give space for those who have this need to feel represented. These conversations are a good start at that, but certainly not the last step. For us, it's the bibing culture that struck a chord. As Caribbean migrants, we have a strong legacy of coming and going, making a home everywhere, seeking for familiarity within the community we constantly place ourselves in. But still, we find ourselves coming back to our roots, to our home, and realize that coming from the Caribbean is a meaning that is an ongoing process. We tried to find the closest translation to by being, and we agreed that Be Right Back was the best choice. In this podcast, we go on a journey with different guests to find out what this means for them while also looking at the different experiences within migrating back and forth from this area. It's a podcast on the culture of being from and going back and forth to the Caribbean. Both Guiana and I are from Aruba. Both our experiences are with coming and going back and forth, as it has given us the privilege to not only have a home in Aruba, but also being able to build a home in the Netherlands. However, our experiences with the whole situation is very complex, and so we find it important and essential to learn from our other Caribbean islands what their experience was. So hi everyone, thank you for listening to the second episode already of Be Right Back or By Being Podcast. Like we already mentioned in the intro, I am Giona. And I am Ava. Today we are talking with our guests, Ernestine Convelius and Lizanne Charles, on our second episode, The Arrival or E Yegada. Within this episode, we focus on the mental, emotional, and physical changes that internally already started to take place the moment that the decision was made concerning the next step in our future the move. Following that, the arrival or a yegada, we will also be covering our first experience in our first year or two here in the Netherlands. What were the first shocks that we encountered? How did we navigate to the Dutch community while knowing that we actually formed part of the community that is less embraced? Where did we eventually feel welcome but merely tolerated? And how did our guests experience this when they first arrived in the Netherlands? We came to the Netherlands with an aim to study or to work or any other factor. Progressing a year or two into this journey, how did this unfold? What were the easy or difficult things we experienced? I'll start a little bit on that. There are so many things to be mentioned in this, but we only have about an hour for this conversation. So I guess you could see it as sort of a starter. Personally, for me, Giona, it was pretty intense, I would say. I moved from home in Aruba when I had a fairly uncertain situation that I had to deal with and leave behind. I had to deal with a lot of guilty feelings accompanied with moving away from the place I called home to pursue sort of like a life goal I could say to study to do something that I loved but that meant to leave people behind that I loved as well like we mentioned in the first episode it was a whole like sort of grooming process for us as students to go to the Netherlands from Aruba. Nonetheless, it was still a move to the Netherlands to pursue a goal. So I remember finding it pretty intense 
to immediately jump in as well into the world of academia because I was going to study and I did study and I finished my studies at the Erasmus University. I studied history. During my studies, I only had like one non-white teacher all the four years I studied there. Dini Özdil, I think many people know him from the news or NSA. Majority of the students in my classes, and we are talking about hundreds of students for 90% white as well. Uh, so the culture shock and gap of what I knew from back home from only a month before, actually, because I arrived in August 2011 and I went to school in the fall in September 2011. The gap was big. So not even speaking on the fact that I had to physically get used to the new country. I remembered also like getting very sick because of that as a person from, a, from the Caribbean. I had a very fast, a very big vitamin D deficiency. So something a lot of people from the Caribbean don't know about, that they have a vitamin D deficiency. So there was a big culture gap. There was a big gap in uh, feeling, the feeling of home. And it was hard to keep up my studies that way as well. Uh, but I pulled through and one or two of my professors went a little bit easier on me in regards to the deadlines. Um, and that was a game changer for me. And I think it's, it comes to say that, you know, there is a certain way that certain things are painted for us when we're back home and how the reality of it actually comes quite as a big, well, white canvas, if you want to call it, to be honest, because, you know, you feel so unrelated to everything that at the moment is being presented to you. And so for me, it was really, well, I mean, internally, you do feel anxious and nervous and scared and quite unprepared. So leaving the place where you grow up and leaving your family, and in this case, specifically my mother, but at the same time, knowing that you're going to pursue something that you've wanted to do for a very long time. So it's kind of like a very intertwined feeling, a very specific stomach ache, <laughs> if I may call it, uh, that you feel at the same time. But because you're in a new place and there's new places to explore and new soils to discover, you, you do keep that as like, in the back of your head, you know, it's a new place. I can find my way. Eventually I can call it, you know, between brackets, mine. So there's a lot of course playing at that, at the same time, when you move from, in this case, Aruba to the Netherlands, when you start school, in my case, when I started the dance Academy, 90% of the people there were uh, white for sure. And, or Caucasian or European. And I had a lot of teachers. If I can say I had around 20 teachers for sure in my four years. And I would say two of them were non-white, one African and one Surinamese. And even at arriving there, you would think that the community that of ABC dancers that would be there would also be a bit more open or a bit more welcoming. But even they, sometimes some would be very distinctive. And that was, you know, a pity because you would think that you could like find some kind of an ally. But at that moment, you, it's kind of you, yourself and you, <laughs> to be very honest. And my way of getting around school was to mainly speak English and write my papers and my essays in English. And my teachers accepted it totally okay. But when you graduate, you get this like presentation of how you did your trajectory at school and I was mocker speaking English the whole time so that kind of says enough you know come winter time and then you have like your seasonal depression but you can't seem to understand why connecting that to what Guiana said about the whole vitamin D um, shortage that you have and it really does influence everything that happens around you at that very moment so of course you're very much seen as the problem student sometimes and that's of course not your intention but of course you do find your people eventually and luckily that uh, kept me going for sure I would like to give my insight on how the academic dance life looks like when you've never had any professional classes prior 
and what gap this creates between recreational and professionalism in dance. While there are many educators doing important work on keeping the art of dance alive, when I went to study abroad, there were not enough opportunities for aspiring artists to develop further back on Aruba as established professional artists. In other words, when you finish your recreational dance education, you do not grow further than this level on Aruba unless you move abroad. Those who wanted to receive professional academic education usually move to the Netherlands or to the USA to professionalize at the dance academies or dance companies of their chosen career path. In my case, I studied in the Netherlands and so did many of my dance educators at the time. When I moved to the Netherlands in 2013, at the time there was no professional dance institute on Aruba and there still isn't to this day for economic and social reasons, just to name a few. There forms a gap between recreational and professional dance. And the result of this is then very visible when you start studying. In my point of view, ideally a pre-professional guidance is necessary because the difficulty and the level that is required to be accepted and to hold your place within the dance academy world is beyond. And this is beside the fact that you have also moved abroad you are experiencing cultural shocks. Your body is getting used to weather that it is not meant for your body to be in in the first place. Communicating and finding your place as a Caribbean dancer and as a Caribbean immigrant living in the Netherlands. The Caribbean dance community amongst the Dutch dance academies was and still is very small and sometimes very exclusive to say the least. We must also remember that the factor of competition within the dance world in general has always been and still is very much present when we speak of group formations and favoritism. Professionals do not always reach out to help newcomers who are very new to the academic and eventually also the professional dance world. There are also many who do follow the European aesthetics of dance and it influences the formation of your dance language very much. I experienced a huge disconnection. And unfortunately, this also has an effect on the representation factor for Caribbean dancers, but also black dancers in general. And eventually, this also affects the factor of having the accessibility to have a better dance education if you come from the Caribbean. And then in my case, specifically the ABC Islands so many things I want to react on what you just said, Ava, but I think it's a lot has to do as well as what, what we said in the first episode is that we move into these new kinds of systems or these new ways of how value is created in society or what is deemed valuable, like speaking the Dutch language, even though we had that on the island, but now it was on a, it's not a very different level. What you said about actually like talking English. I wasn't even allowed to talk English or write my papers in English. I'm recalling now. And I find looking back, I think that's pretty weird seeing that the at Oslo University really puts itself out there as like a very international university. So that's just something I'm thinking about now that you said this is that I was always like very anxious to write in Dutch. I feel a Ruben, but 
I was raised Surinamese in that sense, and my parents talked Dutch at home, and they always hammered on speaking Dutch very well, and they would always correct me. As a way, I guess, to prepare me for the future, knowing that I would go to the Netherlands, it always felt to me like I was suppressing the five different languages that I wanted to come out that I can speak as well. Because that is reality. That is reality for Caribbean people in general. That is reality for a lot of people, not only Caribbean people, who speak different languages, who are multicultural, you know, and language is a way we express ourselves. So, yeah, thanks for that thought prompt, I would say. Did you want to react, Ava, or not specifically? So, moving on a little bit more with our guests, we will be talking a little bit about these notions, but also specific questions that you will hear further down the road in this podcast. Also, kind of like a disclaimer, or at least a thought of consciousness, is that we want to mention as well that these conversations are coming from as much as possible a critical point of view, and that we are also aware that these conversations, like all of the podcast episodes, are also being executed within institutional contexts, so like our partners and stuff, and that we are very aware of the roles that institutions can play in forming narratives, but that we as much as possible as hosts and with our guests like to break open those walls and talk about what is important to us. So it's not a definite conversation. It's just an open conversation where we share our thoughts and experiences, where we find similarities and we find the differences to also learn from that. One of the first shocks I received arriving in the Netherlands is how developed the Dutch language is and how relatively narrow my Dutch vocabulary was back in 2013. My way of survival was to speak what I could in Dutch and what I couldn't comprehend in Dutch, I spoke in English. But I realized it wasn't because I didn't know what to say. It was because I spoke four languages, English, Spanish, Papiamento, and Dutch. And my brain and my tongue weren't always on the same page. So I code switched a lot and I proudly still do to this day. English was my go-to language when I truly wanted to express myself in the correct manner. And because of the American culture you grow up with on Aruba through television and reading a lot of English books, for example, my English vocabulary was richer than my Dutch, even though I understood everything I read for my studies, which was 98% written in academic Dutch. What I didn't understand, I would look up. Because I knew that my school's core was built on being transcultural, one of the first requests I had made when I started studying was if I could write my essays and my papers in English. Luckily, my request was approved, and one of the requirements was that all of my work had to be then written in proper and academic English. This was no problem for me, and I had always received good grades, and I would even sometimes write certain assignments in Dutch, because eventually I was also questioned why I didn't speak Dutch. When I tried, I couldn't always find my way out, and would sometimes be laughed at, but I scored pretty good grades in Dutch as well. In Guiana's case, for example, the pressure to speak and write an academic Dutch weighed heavy. A school that markets itself for being international, there were very high standards for speaking Dutch, and thus there was no room for speaking English, and even less for writing English. These standards were more or less already set before moving to the Netherlands, as Guiana explains in the first episode where she talks about grooming. 
This is one of the many educational situations Caribbean students face when coming to study here in the Netherlands. Today, I can say my Dutch is much better than eight years ago, and I recognize code switching as something rich and powerful. And when I find myself doing it, I do not apologize to the one who I am talking to anymore. I code switched my way through college and succeeded. Even though we have some struggles in the different consciousness that we need to embody and eventually develop being in different spaces and countries and cultures, these proximities tend to teach us to be resilient as well. Maybe a little bit too much that is healthy for us. But either way, we also enjoy the certain privileges that we can find in inequality. So with this, we would like to start actually with that first question, Lisan and Ernestine, and I give the word to Guiana. Before one of you answers, please do introduce yourself, who you are, what you're doing, and whatever you want to share with us, obviously. Sure. Good day. Thanks for having me. My name is Lisanne Charles, born and raised on Sable. I also studied on Curacao, lived on St. Martin for a large chunk of my life, studied in the United States, North Carolina, and then came back to St. Martin and Sable to work a bit, and then moved to the Netherlands to do a master's degree. Came back, been in the region doing all sorts of stuff in activism around LGBT rights, women's rights, black emancipation, youth empowerment. Also working, of course, I worked in government at the Department of Sports, Department of Social Development, Constitutional Affairs. And last year, I actually left my job that I had for the last few years, where I was the director of a um, small NGO in Sable, which helped people get uh, jobs who have a distance to the labor market. And I went on an artist sabbatical, which was supposed to sort of, you know, uh, rejuvenate me. And for the most part, it have. But COVID also got in the way of that a little bit. But opportunities also came out of that. So I just recently campaigned for Bay Aim from the Caribbean, and that was an experience in and of itself. And I'm super proud of. Uh, to be a part of that party and platform. Uh, in addition to that, I do what I really, really love, which is writing. I write children's books. I write poetry. I have a book of poetry out. And I've just finished editing my grandmother's second memoir. So I'm very, very happy with that. And it's going to be published very soon. So that's me in a nutshell, super busy. And the aunt to a very precocious niece, I have to say that, uh, Tiana. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you for sharing. We'll be getting more into your thoughts, obviously, when we go to the questions. Ernestine, maybe you want to introduce yourself as well, talk a little bit about what you do, who you are, and then we go to the questions. I'm Ernestine Comvalius. I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, where shall I begin? I'm born in Suriname. And when I was a child, I, I came to the Netherlands. I lived here for like five years. I went to grammar school, elementary school, but then I also went to New York. That's where I finished senior high. And in 72, I came back to the Netherlands. I studied social sciences, uh, but also performing arts. I have worked for, oof, I think, 22 years in the, in the art sector. I will tell you more about that later. I also write poetry. <laughs> it was nice to hear that you write that too. Yes, very important. So I publish essays. Actually, I retired. I almost forgot to tell you that, but that's very important. <laughs> Since January last year, I'm retired, but yeah, I'm busy. So so I don't know what retiring means. I have been an activist, especially in the in the 70s, came back and well, I'll tell you more about it later. It was, was an important yeah, time for Suriname, became independent and thousands of people came here. So I, I guess you 
know the story, but that was uh, very important for me and many others to um, to fight racism, etc. So that's my story. Thank you, Ernestine. Thank you, Lisanne. I wanted to add a little bit before we go to the question. To me, Ernestine, even before I met you, I think last year, like we talked for the first time, I think at Belmont Park, I always had this image of you as like the auntie. Like you <laughs> remind me of my aunts back home. That was a really nice feeling of home to kind of pinpoint to that bit. So thank you for your work in many, many ways. So the first question, and we will begin with Lizen for the answering first, and then we go on to Ernestine. So I'm gonna read the question now. Despite our colonial past, what are the privileges that we can and do receive once one decides to move to the Netherlands? You can think of things like the passport privileges, language privilege as well, uh, cultures maybe that we things of in our culture that we already know like well, how is that in Seba for example Lizanne what are the privileges you see that you have being a Saban in the Netherlands or being able to go back and forth in that yeah um, well I would definitely say um, that it would start with the fact that you can get funding and, and uh, you can pay less to go to school so that's also one of the reasons why in fact I had completed my undergrad in the U.S. and it was quite costly even though I chose to go to a um, more affordable university making that decision to go to the Netherlands was like strictly financial like I could pay less and also owe less I think that's one of the privileges and of course your passport is also a privilege so you have the ability to go without having to get a visa you know all of these kind of things in my case I thought it was super interesting because I went to the international school and initially they were giving me a hard time like they were like no you're an international student and I was like how am I an international student and I have a Dutch passport and you know so we had to have all of these conversations around that but indeed, in the end, because of the Dutch passport, I could I could have the, the privilege of, of uh, less finances. But in the end, that also worked against me in terms of funding, because what I got from Duo was a lot less than a lot of my colleagues got, you know, also like in terms of grants and scholarships. And I was like, what? Like, well, one of my colleagues told me how much money he was getting. I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy, you know? So I would say that's the, that's the main privilege that I can see. And also I think, you know, I had some idea of what the Netherlands was like because I had heard about it my whole life and, and knew that eventually probably I would end up going there to school. It was a, a wish of my family. So I think I was a little bit prepared in that sense. Also, I had a lot of cousins there, aunts, uncles. So I had a network to kind of go to but in the end it was still quite shocking um you know once once I touched ground and skipped and got to the Hague and then had to navigate the spaces I think I was still sort of prepared but unprepared and um in a lot of ways people have with the language of the historical colonizer is a very complex one this is a language like Dutch, Spanish, English, French, that was institutionalized as the only way of creating value in day-to-day -day life, in creating access in day-to-day -day life. Historically seen, for example, lighter-skinned people, often called mulatos, could make their way up to a middle class, not by only the color of their skin, but by speaking the language of the former colonizer very well, better integrated, so to speak, through education, for example, in letting people in the former colonies learn about the colonizer's land, names of rivers, companies, names of kings and queens, even European seasons that were never a part of the Caribbean landscape. 
This is active erasure of the indigenous, creole, or hybrid cultures of the land itself. This could also be seen in the beginning and the middle of the 20th century when, for example, in Aruba with the Lago and Shell in Curaçao, through industrialization and so-called modernization, the same old repeated colonial behavior, so to speak, were seen. This time, people who had family legacies of being enslaved paid for their work and got housing as well, for example. But the exploitation was a very big factor still. that I was Dutch, but not Dutch. So yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because I can't really think of other privileges that I had coming from Sable because in terms of language, it was completely different. Um, in terms of culture, it was completely different. Um, so yeah. Yes, thank you. I hear you when you say you were prepared, but unprepared. We kind of touched upon that in the first episode that you can hear on Spotify, by the way, and Apple Podcasts. <laughs> thank you, Luzanne. Um, Ernestine, maybe you want to get into this. Yeah, maybe I should talk about two episodes because I came as a child, so it's the perspective of a child, and I came as a student. Let's begin with my privileges as a child. I think, well, the fact that I was born in the family I was born in <laughs> was a privilege because uh, I, I lived with my, my grandparents and my grandfather, though his mother was born right after slavery was abolished and, and she had to work uh, on the market and etc. He was able you know, to learn and uh, yeah, to, to achieve a certain position in education in, uh, in Suriname, he, he became, now you would say, a director of school. Um, so, um, so when I was young, there was no poverty. I had an education in which um, um, I went to a school, a Dutch school, you could call it, the Vrije School. And so I learned Dutch. I read many books about the Netherlands. Uh, I knew more about the Netherlands than about, about than about my country. I knew everything about the snow, but I did I didn't know what it was like until I came here. Well, that, that's the story from the youth. I must say that I was also anxious. I was happy that I uh, come to the Netherlands because my mother lived here, so I wanted to see my mother. I I, I didn't mind leaving the country in the beginning. So, and they prepared me. It was a very strange thing, but I had to say goodbye to everybody in the neighborhood because, you know, everybody's your aunt and your uncle, etc. And then they would make food for me and tell me, this is Dutch food. They would make potatoes and all kinds of stuff. And they were preparing me to go to this, you know, promised land. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's my privilege. El Dorado. Many of us have heard about this so-called finding El Dorado, though many of us do not know what it means or the different types of ways it's used. Finding El Dorado is a common expression when we read texts rooted in different colonial times. The dominant narrative about what this is 
or what it was or what it was in the beginning is that the Spanish conquistadores or colonizers used El Dorado or finding El Dorado to describe this legend of a mystical tribal chief of an indigenous people of Colombia who would bathe in a golden river. But El Dorado or finding El Dorado is not just this myth, but it's also seen and used in a more metaphorical, systematic sense that is obviously colonially rooted. Like Ernestine uses it in the podcast. People often describe it as finding this better place, going to a better place, which is really obvious in a colonial context where conquistadores, colonizers, went to other countries, pillaged and took on what wasn't theirs to make things better for themselves. It's also referred to as this imaginary promised land or a place where all the answers can lie or a better life can lie you about the shocks and whatever happened. The second part is that after high school, I decided to come and study in the Netherlands. Uh, I could stay in, in New York, but I, I chose the Netherlands. Um, well, you could say it's a privilege that uh, some, my family already lived here, so I could come. There was no problem for me to come here. Uh, there was no problem for me to get like a student loan, things like that. And uh, I, I also worked here. It was easy to get a job. So those are the positive privileges. Thank you, Ernestine. I had one question. In the time that you got to the Netherlands, did you, how was that with Suriname? Did you have a Dutch passport? Was that easy to attain? Yes, we, we all had Dutch passports, actually. Yes. Okay. So uh, it's only in uh, after 1975 that you had to make a choice. And within five years, uh, you were either Dutch, you had a Dutch national or the Sunnimese, and you had to be here to become a Dutch um, citizen. So that's when the, the problem started because the big families, part of them lived here, part there, and they couldn't re reunite. So th that's what th those are the things that made me an activist. <laughs> Thank you for that, that, that context because it makes me realize how much things like passports can on the, on the one hand be a privilege, obviously, but on the other hand, a barrier. And it creates these streams of migration, well, like forcefully in this sense specifically. So that is something to touch upon more in the voiceovers later when we're going to edit the podcast because that is very important. Makes me think of my own Surinamese family. A part of them has Dutch passport, like my dad, and a part of them that lives in, this, in Suriname up until this day don't have that and they need to get a visa to go everywhere. So we can't have joint vacations, which is a privilege to have. But we can't have joint vacations all the time because they need a way longer time to get visas, etc. So thank you. Um, I think we can go to the second question. Ava, you were going to do that one. Yes. Um, I also just want to quickly touch upon as well as what has been said. Uh, when I heard Lisanne's story about, you know, how she came about to the Netherlands and the reasons behind it, it sounded so much like our story, Diana. Um, which I, there were so many points that I could relate to that I thought like, whoa, you know, so um, definitely that I, you know, that you're not alone in this. And it's funny that then, you know, even though it's a, it's an island that's not our sister sister, but up there definitely, and still the system is not too different. So it, it's very interesting to hear about that. And the same goes for Ernestine. Um, in a way, when you said that it's, 
that you you had to leave the country but you didn't have to leave your family and i think whoa indeed that does play a factor with us as well because we leave the country and the family all at the same time and it does make a difference indeed if you're in a new place where you want to eventually live and you have your family close by um so no i uh, thank you both for for the beautiful context of <clears throat> excuse me of course <laughs> uh, which brings me to the second question when we talk about you know, the privileges that we can and do receive. What is the other side of that? What is the other side of privilege at that moment? Um, you can think of, for example, the internal and external negotiations with your identity that eventually you're very much encountered with um, and finding your place within the community here in the Netherlands or having a double consciousness that you have to constantly think like, oh, this is very much something that I have bringing in from where I'm coming from or know this is something that I'm developing because of where you live, of course. Um, and then you have to constantly, of course, place yourself in a world where there is no real representation of where you come from. So what is the other side of privilege? Um, Lisanne, I would like to start with you, if uh, you may. Um, yeah, I think like coming here, one of the things that was uh... Um, we're going to the Netherlands, a lot of the things that was very obvious for, for me was the language, but also the expectation that came around language. So the minute anyone um, knew I had a Dutch passport or was Dutch, um, they'd be like, oh, well, you should be speaking Dutch, like almost as if there was no idea that there were actual uh, entities within the kingdom that that looked different, that, you know, um, that was just completely different. And I was also older um, person when I went to the Netherlands I was 27 so I think like you know that shift that me a lot I know I know also for others who I hear um I hear from like from St. Martin and so but it also like um bothers them but like for me it really really chafed at me because I felt like there was no uh, awareness on the parts of people in the Netherlands sometimes that listen there are other people who carry a Dutch passport um whose existence is existence whose language whose culture they're also completely valid um so that was one of the first things that really you know um was tough for me and also trying to navigate that within an international structure um at the uva but then that was actually still quite dutch so even when i would go to the international school to, to talk about certain things they would expect me to speak in dutch and i'd be like no well i'm going to speak in english because that but you have a dutch passport and you know like all of these conversations so um, that was one. And then I will say, you know, like one of the things when I went to the Netherlands, it, I, I felt free because um, on the one hand, like as an LGBT person. The power of language reclamation can be used as a way to push back against daily forms of oppression. There are many different forms of oppression still apparent up until this day. Marginalization of people occurs in different ways. After the his official historical colonization period, a wave of neocolonialism started around the beginning of the 20th century. And many former colonizing countries like the Netherlands, the UK, the French, but also the USA, kept using the former colonies for exploitative reasons, still using their land, labor and natural resources for their own gain. Within the research of Egbert Martina and Miguel Perez dos Santos, called Geographies of Freedom, which is part of a bigger project, they present a visual documentary on the geographical, architectural and judicial ideas on what this so-called freedom actually means and how they pertain to physical spaces. Freedom for the people who fit into the norm does obviously not mean freedom for everyone. These people live not in the old slavenhutten, 
Er worden steeds meer geriefelijke woningen voor hen gebouwd die doelmatig en gezellig zijn ingericht. De huisvrouwen hebben geleerd smakelijke en voedzame maaltijden te bereiden en de moderne keukeninrichting veraangenaamd het werk. Na de maaltijd gaan de kinderen terug naar school. Een van de vele moderne onderwijsinstellingen die in de stad en op het land zijn geopend. Ambachtsscholen en nijverheidsonderwijs vormen de technici, waarna grote vraag is in deze eerst kort voor de industrie ontsloten gebieden. Ontspeurde jeugd wordt hier, zoals elders, door werk en heropvoeding teruggebracht tot de geordende maatschappij. In this episode, you will hear our guest, Lisanne Charles, speak of the word allochtoon. And we would like to explain what this word means and how it is used within the Dutch community. The word allochtoon is a Dutch word with its literal meaning emerging from another soil. Meaning, you were not born on Dutch soil. Meaning, you do not belong here. The word allochtoon is the opposite of autochtoon, which literally means emerging from this soil. Meaning, you were born on Dutch soil. Meaning, you are accepted and respected amongst the Dutch community. In the Netherlands, the term allochtoon is widely used to refer to immigrants and their descendants. It is a racist term that was introduced amongst politicians in 1970s and was used for people who segregated in another culture, a person who does not speak proper Dutch, a person who came to the Netherlands as a guest worker or a descendant of a guest worker, people with non-white skin color, and a person of no Dutch ethnicity. The word is meant to create separation between people, between communities and to directly say who is really Dutch and who is not and who is in theory and in practice accepted amongst the Dutch. Even us being from Aruba with a Dutch nationality and having a Dutch passport, we are still referred to as allochtonen to this very day. Our guest Lisanne Charles goes more into her own experience with this term. I had space to kind of get to know myself in a way that I didn't necessarily at home. But then on the other side, like I really felt not seen uh, as a black person or, or, or maybe seen in a way that I was like, no, this is not right. And I remember one of the things that was shocking to me because when I got there, they were still using this word alertone. For the first time, having somebody use that to me and I was like, like, what, what is this about? And then when I actually did the research and whatnot, for me, I was just, uh, you know, mind blown that this is the way that, yeah, a country that I belong to could, could view uh people on the other side of the sea. But I also was very rebellious with that. So I went to this store because I, I lived in the Netherlands. I lived in Amsterdam, uh, like almost in the center. And I went to this store. It was like a, a anarchy store um, that was like right up the road from me. They had all these shirts saying Alachton and whatnot. And I remember I bought one and I wore it everywhere. Um, and people would get annoyed with me, you know, but I was like, no, because I felt like, you know, since it's going to be this way, then let's, let's be unrepentantly this way. So those kind of things to me were like the downside the, the, or the flip side of, of the privilege because yes you could go there but just because you could go there doesn't mean it necessarily you were welcomed there oppressed people and communities often reclaim actions or words that were once used to oppress them as a form of reclaiming agency like Lizanne said using the word allochtone and putting that on a shirt was a form of this linguistic reclamation this language reappropriation in this specific case is used to empower the person who takes that word back for themselves and obviously 
using language reappropriation carries a risk to misunderstanding and confusion, particularly in the case of loaded terms or words still commonly used in demeaning manner. But it's always important to realize that are you using words from a power, privileged power position or not? Very interesting. No, uh, interesting. <laughs> um, and especially when you bring up the point of... Uh that you brought a shirt that says Alakhton and how it seems to be very normalized within the language here and very much pinpointed so quickly. So I'm going to, we're going to come back on this. I, w- I would like to hear Ernestine's answer to this uh, question. Okay. I'll first talk about, about the, the first time that I came to the Netherlands. Uh, the time frame is important. It was 1964. The Netherlands was quite different from what it is here. I, I, I lived in Rotterdam, you know, you know how Rotter, what Rotterdam is like. But at that time, there were no black children in school. I, I, I remember that in high school, there was a brown young man, and I think he was Indonesian. But that's, that's one of them. So it, it, was, it was difficult, actually, because I had to answer so many stupid questions. So, you know, you, you know all these stories, but I experienced them. The touching of my hair, but also... The teachers, uh, I can remember this teacher was the head of the school and still he asked me, how come you speak in Dutch so well? So they didn't know anything about our history and I had read everything about the Netherlands. (laughs) And it was strange for me that I, even as a girl from nine, 10 years old, that they didn't know that much. I, I remember also the, the history teacher, because I wanted to, to make a presentation about Suriname. Sranang or Sranang Tongo is the way that it deemed respectful to call the lingua franca of Suriname. In 17th century colonial times, white settler colonists like the Dutch, Portuguese, or German, called it taki-taki, which is a degrading manner to call the language. This language was pinpointed specifically to black enslaved population that they spoke it, making it an inferior on the hierarchy of languages. Even though Surinamese Sranang, Sranantongo, is a Creole language mixed with the dominant languages of the colonizers. And at that point, it was also widely spoken by white and mixed people, mostly in the city or rural areas, like in Paramaribo, for example. It sounds the most as the Saramakan language, which is one of the Maroon society languages in the Guyanas. It's taki-taki, what you're talking. So, and another aspect which is also important, my mother was married, she's still married, to a Dutch man. So I came actually partly in a Dutch family and I wasn't happy with that because um, all of a sudden I had different rules, uh, all kinds of rules about what you can eat, what you can't eat, what time you have to eat, what time you don't eat. wasn't used to that. That's not the way my grandmother raised me. And if I was hungry, I could eat anyway. Uh, and if I wanted to eat uh, warm food in the morning, it was possible that no, no, everything was structured. Um, you ate bread at 11 o'clock. You, I think they drank coffee. 
uh, three o'clock, there was tea. I hated that. So that's why at a very early age, <laughs> I started to go to the library and I started to read about who I, who I am and about my history. So at a young age, I had read, of course, the book of Uncle Tom, but also about the, the, the Underground Railroad. Uh, I had to, because nobody understood where I was from. Uh, they were either very friendly, which means they didn't treat me as equal, or, oh yeah, I for, almost forgot, I had to fight. Yes, I had literally, uh, I had to fight with my fists to earn respect, but I was strong. I came from Suriname. I, sometimes I had to fight that too. I wasn't afraid. And I was a little bit big for my age, so I was strong. And uh, actually uh, I didn't, I liked the boys more, but not in a, but because I liked to, um, I was sportive. I, how do you say it? I liked to, to, to play with them, to sport, etc. But, so I wasn't, um, yeah, I'm trying to say that uh, uh, I hated the racist things that these children said, but I was able to fight with them because I was strong. That's what I wanted to say. And after a year, I think I earned respect because I, it wasn't nice to have to fight all the time, but the ugly things they would say, I didn't, um, uh, accept any of it. I don't know why I was like that, but <laughs> you couldn't even make a joke about my color or my hair or you would get beat up. So after a year, I had enough friends so I could relax a little bit and start being, you know, just a child in the Netherlands. And even then, it's funny that because Ernestine, of course, is telling it from a very different time period, still there are some things that up to today are still very much the same. The representation is not quite there yet. Some questions that you are going to be keep getting asked that you constantly have to defend yourself more and explain yourself more and constantly have to ask for even more respect. So I already find it so strange that, you know, even then still things were not as equal as you would expect it to be. And still today, we still have that inequality so strongly over. Guiana, if you want to add anything, please do. Yeah, I I have so many, so many things to touch upon, but we have, we don't have a lot of time left in that sense. So I had to think about a few things in the, in the fact that we're actually talking about things like violence, anti-blackness, the amount of racism, that I felt that I have a privilege now that I have paramount of people like with the BLM protests that show up and talk about people who suffer under this system. And that if I think about the stories of my aunts or like Ernestine in that specific time frame, is that you were left more alone to deal with that violence and the violence is also not only outside or, or with white people, but I also had to think about the fact that oftentimes what was also touched upon is when specifically in Surinamese contexts, I see, I can only speak from that, is that I see if you have white Dutch family, the dynamic changes in the family because you those hierarchical power structures are put into the family. So consciously and unconsciously, 
something that I've been struggling with as well growing up and living in the Netherlands is how to deal with someone that I call family, but I don't feel that family bond in the same way I have it with my Surinamese or Aruban, Surinamese Aruban family. So I, I had to really think about that and, and, and the fact that it's, it seeps into everything, like the way we have to constantly negotiate, okay, who, am I, who, who can I be in this space? Who can I be with this person in my family, with my uncle, with my aunt, with, with my cousin, even my cousins in the Netherlands who are my cousins, but they grew up here. They have a very different way of looking at the world. They are uh, more privileged in a lot of senses, class, class-wise as well. So all of those different dynamics, I really had to think about that when I was hearing both of you talk and that I would add like one of the privileges for me personally or for our generation, if I can also say that for you, Ava, especially hearing Ernestine talk, is that we still deal with violences, but in a very different way than that people from her generation had to deal with or the people from my aunt's generations and uncles and my dad and my mom or some thoughts that were that were coming up we had like a third question but now we can maybe open up more freely maybe go a little bit more into the political activist side or policy side if you have examples of policies of back then or now the question is what is truly the landscape so culturally socially economically of having these privileges when coming to the netherlands but also needing to deal with these dynamics that we just thought about so the two sides of that coin of having privileges but also that constant negotiation. Lizanne, you want to start? Like, you're a politician, you see things, you, you've done many things. How do you see that in how you navigate and do those things for, yeah, in the past years that you've been active? Well, one of the first things that I think I had to uh, come to grips with was actually the negation of my experiences. Like, I felt like in the Netherlands in particular, and sometimes speaking with European Dutch people, that was often the case. So, like, I would say, like, listen, this is how I'm experiencing this thing. And sometimes not even for me, but there's other people that I heard uh, run into issues uh, with the systems and the structures. And, and people are like, no, no, the Netherlands, there's no racism. The Netherlands, there is, there is no violence against people coming from the until, you know, like, so it was like really sometimes you're made to feel like this thing was happening in your head and 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 sometimes even within our own circles um we had internalized so much what was you know being said that we would then police each other like you know um p- police each other's behavior and oh are you being so loud and are you being so loud like until like all of these kind of things and i was like well actually they're not really being loud they're just being kids you know um, like kids on the train or, you know, so certain things like those, I, I really felt like those were troubling to me. And even within the last year and, and on the campaign trail, you know, like often trying to speak about colonialism and the legacy of colonialism and the hierarchies, just like you say, you know, like the hierarchies that exist within the kingdom and how we, we don't like to call a thing a thing, even on the island sometimes. And even as islanders, like we're, we're like, no, uh, there is no uh, colonial colonialism still. There's no neo-colonialism. Um, this is just something you guys are 
happy to play victim. And, and you know, like one of the things I keep saying is like, no, I'm not a victim of history, but I am an heir to it. And as long as we don't name what I am an heir to, there is no way for us to address it as a collective. I can do as much as I want to do as an individual, but as a, if we don't move as a collective, we're not going to get very far. And so that's why indeed like you, you know, like for me, I think I remember seeing the, the picture on the dumb with the 8,000, 10,000 people and like literally getting goosebumps because I had remember protests around Zwatapi before that where like very few people would turn up and I was like, where are all these people? Even like when the, the ministers from St. Martin, Curacao and Aruba went to the Netherlands and, and I made this hashtag, um, you know, an unequal kingdom and tried to get people mobilized, go and support them. Very little uh, people showed up. So when this protest happened at the dam, I said, okay, it's a changing of the guard. Like, you know, like something is going to shake the fabric of, of the society that we're moving in. Yeah, like, you know, for me, I think those are those are my experiences around that. And I'm, there's a lot more I can say about politics, etc. But I think like what the most important thing for me to say right now is that I feel the next generation, this generation and the next generations are going to build on the work that was done by previous generations who did what they could to actually move things further in a, very, in a much different way. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask, maybe you have like the first two years that you were in the Netherlands, Lizanne, do you have like any recollection of a memory or something of one or two memories that you have of like that transition of arriving here, maybe at school or were you already involved in politics? I was already involved in politics actually from quite young. I was um, a, a teenager involved with the Democratic Party on St. Martin, you know, doing a lot of things around women's rights quite early on feminism. But one of the things I will say that was actually like, you know, it's a bittersweet memory for me is because like really when I went to the Netherlands, I felt very isolated because of the language. So as long as I wasn't with my cousins, I mean, or the international students, I didn't really feel a connection to to European Dutch people because oftentimes they either wouldn't speak English or, or you know, or, or if I was trying to speak Dutch, they would, you know, act funny. So um, I remember being in the tram from The Hague, Eithoff, going to Central, and I happened to sit next to this very, very old Dutch lady, and she started to speak to me in, in Dutch. And I remember, like, being reluctant, but then she kept probing, and we started to talk. And actually, you know, it's like a 20, 30-minute ride from the Eithoff to the... Um, uh, to the cent to Central, and we arrived at Central, and I had had a whole conversation with this lady in Dutch. And for me, I think something shifted a little bit in my willingness to engage because I felt like all the time when I was trying to engage, even in situations where I felt like I should have been helped and and respected as an individual. So I'm talking about like sometimes at the school or sometimes at the housing office, sometimes at duo. Oftentimes I would get this pushback immediately. And whereas to me, like this lady was welcoming in a way that I hadn't experienced that in the Netherlands. And that's why I, like, I, I go back to say that, you know, like even though we have the privilege um, through passport and through this colonial connection of going there, it doesn't mean that we're always welcomed. And then when I listened to my mom's story about how she was welcomed in the Netherlands and how, you know, um, the, the nuns treated them well and all this kind of, I felt like that I was not a welcome that I received at all. Thank you, Lizanne. Um, Ernestine, um, would you like to answer this for, for you? Okay, I'll, I'll start with 
how was how was I formed b before I came to the Netherlands in '72? Well, in those three years that that I lived in in New York, I I went to the rallies and meetings from the Black Panthers in Columbia University, and the Young Lords were there also. Of course, my family wouldn't know that we would go there, but we went. <laughs> um, we organized the Black Student Union, and I had a, an English subject, African American literature, because the '72 that was just right after the Civil Rights Movement. So some high school, especially this one in New Rochelle, Westchester County, this high school was experimenting. The first time in history we had a, a Black director. So those things have influenced me and have shaped me. When I came to the Netherlands to become a student, I became part of a progressive movement of mostly Surinamese people. But at that time, we were always together also with the people from the islands. We all, read, we all knew each other and they were part. Together we will, would have all our discussions. So in that sense, and I had also a family who, were, who was part of that movement. In that sense, that was very important. It, it helped me. So I didn't became, become a lonely student. I started to support other students also who came to, to the Netherlands from Suriname then. We had this, uh, of course, it was the time from Marxism, Leninism, etc. So we would study all this. During that time, uh, what happened was that thousands of Sunnis came to the Netherlands. And then we noticed that the media was very negative about these people with the Dutch nationality. So we would see these, these, these headlines about that they are thieves and, and, and they all have knives. Really, it's, it's, that's, that's the way they, they had demonstrations against these people. In, in the government, they would have discussions for how, how do we stop this movement. We, we decided to uh, become a political, so not um, parliamentary political, but a political organization. Now you would say, you know, we became activists and we organized, we organized demonstrations, we organized anti-racism campaigns. What did we do? We, we, all, we organized protests. Every time they would, for example, want to deport people from Suriname, we, we, you know, there were actions. The, the people, they had to live in pensions, you know, in, in very bad housing. We would go there to support them and to make sure that they know their rights. So, yeah, the, those were the, the first years. Those were very important years. And I, I hope that um, what we did was also an inspiration for the activists right now. You wanted to say something, Lisan? Yes, I wanted to say, like, you know, um, piggybacking on something that you said about um, actually, you know, that the media got to be so negative. Because, like, with my mom's experience and my aunt, sometimes like, they didn't understand my experience um, being, you know, in the Netherlands. Because for them, it had actually been quite welcoming because they were, like, in the countryside. And it was a small group. And I think the Netherlands still looked, or people in the Netherlands still looked at them as this, like, small, exotic group. But as the numbers grew, the tone changed. And so the, the, the Netherlands that I went to was not one that they, you know, could necessarily imagine living in or had lived in and so for me that was also like sort of like a double whammy because like I'd be in the Netherlands sort of struggling to, to find my way and then coming back to talk to people about it who didn't understand either what I had been through and the pressure that I was under um in in the Netherlands so that's why I say like you know also I also feel like uh the the, the generation of Ernestine they did this so much and started so many things and I feel like our generation and the generation after us cannot forget that and feel like you know like this is just something 
that's happening now is building on actually the energies of people who have, who have really worked to make uh, the Netherlands different. Thank you. And that, but what you said about the, this generation gap, I recognize that also because many of my members of my family, they studied in the Netherlands, etc. But many went to America. They, they live there. And their idea is that this is a socialist country. <laughs> so um, I, I recognize that. Thank you both for... We're almost at the time and we still have a little bit of the second segment. I told you all that it would feel like we just got started. But um, no worries about that. Hopefully this is the beginning of long conversations about this and so many things to touch upon. I'm very excited to see how we can incorporate this in the voiceovers, especially I wanted to touch a little bit about what Ernestine said before about like going to this promised land. It made me think about my, my thesis that I was writing on uh, travel writing on young or yeah, fairly young white males who went to Suriname because of state affairs and they would write long travel things about um, how it was in Suriname. And then hearing again about what Ernestine said, and that's like an El Dorado for the Dutch back then. And it still is now because we keep perpetuating that thought process that even Ava and I as students and Bizan, maybe you as well, like, you know, you get groomed, as we said as well in the in the first ep episode, to go to the promised land, so to speak. And also what Ernestine said about the structure uh, of when to eat and what to eat when. It's, it's actually mind-boggling because when Ernestine was talking about that, I remember flashbacks of reading those travel logs and the guy was literally saying at 8 or 7, we do this, at 11, we do this, and then we take a nap, and at 1, we do this, and it's like almost the same. And I'm just like, that's in like 1801 or something. And we're still reliving those structures just in a very different way. And maybe the bodies who were once oppressed fully and now have certain privileges are still being oppressed, but kind of recreating those scenarios because of the system we live in. So, you know, it's good to be very aware of what we do and why we do it. And at the same time, how we tire ourselves out oftentimes by be doing good, like being activists and standing up for ourselves and our communities, uh, seeing like with Ernestine, how uh, in her generation, like how the fight was not individual, but in a day-to-day -day life, it was very more individual than it maybe is right now in my generation and Ava's generation and maybe even Bizan's generation. Welcome to the second segment called Treasures We Keep, where we talk with our guests on the things they bring to the table related to home, be it a picture, sound, song, poem, aka treasure. Basically, the segment where we ask our guests, in this case, Ernestine and Lisen, to bring an object of any shape or form that is at all in any way related to where they come from, um, something folkloric, something historical, something that really is a special object to them. And I'm very curious to know what the both of you have brought today. Um, I don't know if maybe Ernestine wants to go first. Yes, I have been thinking because I have so many choices. I have a poem I have written in English, but then you said it's about home. And well, for me, I was, I was young as, as a mother. And, uh, and then I didn't have many family members near me. So I had to 
learn my child by myself certain things what I what I have learned when I was young so the song a Surinamese song is also important that these children you know learn these songs so actually I my choice is for this very small Surinamese song that I also sing for my grandchildren it is um in, in English, I, I first I will say what they say in English. It's about how can you say that I'm not beautiful because two flowers have created me. One of the flowers is called Rosebud and that's my mother. And the other flower, my father is called Firmness. So how can you say that I'm not beautiful? Shall I sing it? Why you can't talk me no more? Fayu can talk me no more. Fayu can talk me no more. Natu brom chime kimi. Rosa knop na mi mama. Stan faster na mi papa. Fayu can talk me no more. Natu brom chime kimi. That's my contribution. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ernestine. That was very touching. <laughs> I think it's good for the audience to know that everybody's tearing up behind their microphone. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, it's funny because you actually take me back to a time that I am so not familiar with. And I think that's so special about a, a beautiful song like that. And um, yeah, Guiana, I, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at you. I think for you, it was also very touching. This is actually a song that um, my aunt used to sing uh, to me or in, at family gatherings when I was younger. So it really makes me emotional um, because I kind of underestimate as conscious as I was as a child as well, but I underestimate the power of what listening to that right now in the state that I'm in and everything I'm going through in my life how that brings you back to a certain comfort. So I want to thank you for sharing that and uh, opening up that vulnerable space. So yes, thank you. And uh, of course, we're very curious to hear Lisanne and what she has uh, brought today to the segment of Treasures We Keep. Yeah, so I actually bought my grandmother's second book. This is a um, author's copy, the first one, it has some mistakes, so I have to do it over. But actually in this book, my grandmother, um, uh, she gave me something that actually belonged to my grandfather, which was a poem. And I'm a poet, but I never knew that my grandfather wrote poetry. So like, now I'm getting emotional because like when I saw it, I was like, wow, you know, because actually like my grandfather was one of the reasons why I went to the Netherlands. Because from the time I was a child, my grandfather would always say, you're going to be a doctor on this you're going to be a doctor on this. There was no choice. Him and my father, like they always, it was instilled in me. And so, and I always knew my grandfather to be like this serious, um, studious, um, didn't say very much, you know, like I, I never saw like somebody creative per se in him. So anyway, um, my grandmother gave me this poem and I was like, no, I have to include it in this book. And it's called From the Top of Sable. So it goes from the top of Sable's mountain to the surf of her sea. There is where my heart always wanted to be, slipping and falling through the fog, swimming and paddling with my love. There was pleasure to be found all year round. But now I'm old and feel so cold to climb afraid as not to fall. 
and to swim the waves are so tall. From the top of Sabah's mountain, there is where I first saw a fountain. But as it passed south on the sea, my comrade shouted, it's a whale to me, you see. And that was a poem that my grandfather wrote. And I think obviously he wrote it as an older person, you know, as well. So I just feel like such an affinity uh, to it. And, and like, I, I wanted to say like really because of him um, and my father and my family, this whole idea of studying, going further, pushing it. And that was always in the back of my mind as well when I was in the Netherlands, going through a lot of different things that I was doing this, not just for me, but also for my family. It's beautiful because it sounds like it's, I mean, of course, it's a poem that was given from your grandfather to your grandmother, but it sounds like it's also kind of like an ode to, you know, the coming generations and the ones that have come and gone already. So absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm actually looking at the time and I really wish that we could really go further into this conversation. It really has felt as if you both have taken us into a time that for us, we could never comprehend, of course, but this is just a glimpse and a glance of how you both experience things here in the Netherlands and how you continue to experience things even from a distance and how much it does influence us and who we are and who we are becoming and everything that has actually been set in the past for us and continue to be set for us today. And as we also continue to have these conversations that are so necessary and I'm very grateful that we could have this conversation with the both of you because I really do feel that I have been taken to a time that I need to understand certain things better so that I can understand where I'm at as well within the community and within my own people and uh, what my possible purpose could be. And I look at my partner, uh, my co-host, Kiana, because we're doing this together, of course. You know, this is the first of the many, many collective conversations that we uh, will be having upon not only the move, but the arrival here to the Netherlands as well. Yeah, um, like Ava said, and like I said at the beginning, this conversation actually just got started. So for everyone listening at home, you know, like feel free to think about it and share thoughts with us on, on Instagram or anywhere else or email us. I think what one thing that this episode or this conversation already taught me is that it was a reminder of the legacies before us and that one, we're not alone, even though we often feel alone because of the different factors we, we spoke of. Even though we are privileged people in many ways, some more than others, we don't often feel connected to each other. And we know the, the thing that things are happening now, especially through social media and, you know, word of mouth. But this connectedness that I'm feeling right now with all four of us, it's, it's something that I haven't felt in a long time. And I'm very happy. And it's a reminder, again, that it's even possible digitally because we're talking in a vulnerable way and in a truthful way. And I think um, a thank you is in place for sharing today. And I want to thank everyone uh, listening in, everyone that's going to tune in in a later time. Yeah, thank you for listening today. And we will like to see you or, or have you with us the next episode that we record. Thank you, Mami, Wendy, Stephanie, Janelle, Varsha, Megan, Gianni, Giona, Diona, Micah, Tibisai, Shari, 
Ila, Lisen, and Ernestine. Danke, danke, danke. I want to thank Mama, Rivi, Stephanie, y'all always keep me going. I want to thank my co-host Eva for going on this ride with me as well. I also want to thank Miguel and Egbert Martina for sharing the Geographies of Freedom documentary that they made as an inspiration and ongoing reminder of that there is still a lot of work to be done. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank all of the supporters and the new supporters alike. I want to thank people back home in different places that I call home. I want to thank my supporters here in the Netherlands as well. People who have believed in me silently and actively. Thank you. Also a big thank you to our team, Caribbean Ties, Museum and Mondrian Fund. Fayou can talk me no more. Fayou can talk me no more. Fayou can talk me no more. Na tu bronchi me kimi. Rosa knop na mi mama. Stan fast na mi papa. Fayou can talk me no more. Thank you for tuning in and we'll be right back around with the next episode soon.